Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Magic 8-Ball edition. It's Friday, February 27th, and I'm your host, Sarah O'Donnell. I am the assignment editor of the journal as well, and today I am joined in the newsroom studio by provincial affairs reporter Karen Cleese. Hello. Provincial affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hi there. And city columnist Paula Simons. We have both of our provincial affairs reporter in the studio at the same time. Shocking. This is very exciting. <laughs> so people will know there, there really are two different that's, people. Yes. That's right. This is fantastic. <laughs> so we called this our Magic 8-Ball edition because it is all about just how hard it is to predict the future, especially here in Alberta. And you wouldn't necessarily think that, but it is. We also could have called it the Look What We Found in the Couch Cushion Editions after Alberta Finance Minister Robin Campbell's third quarter update. Miriam and Karen, Paula, tell me what surprises waited for us in this uh, fiscal update. Oh, well, uh, we heard that once a deficit has turned into a surplus once again, it's a bit of a, uh, we talk a lot about roller coaster um, revenues in Alberta, and it's turning into roller coaster budget predictions as well as we get these quarterly updates. In the second quarter update, we heard there was a $933 million surplus. That was before we really felt the brunt of the falling oil prices. Within weeks, that was being already downgraded. And then by January, Premier Jim Prentice said, well, that's turning into a $500 million deficit. And then lo and behold, on Tuesday, when Finance Minister Robin Campbell delivered the third quarter update, we learned that it was, in fact, once again, a surplus, in fact, a $465 million surplus. So for a lot of Albertans, um, they're probably thinking, how is that possible? Mm -hmm. Uh, first, First thing to consider is that a third quarter update does not capture the present fiscal situation it looks backwards so it's three months uh it's 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 a it's a three-month period in the past uh, from october to december uh, so that's the first thing and so that's when we did begin to see oil dropping but it wasn't as significant as as the more recent drops you know sub 50 that we were seeing in the last two months but more than that we've also heard that there were a few other things that contributed to the province's revenues. There were better returns on investment from the uh, Heritage Savings Trust Fund, uh, more than they were expecting to receive. As well, the loonie has been dropping, and that helps uh, Alberta's bottom dollar uh, bottom line because we trade in U.S. dollars. And so when our trading partners um, see a lower loonie, it means that they're able to per- they get more bang for their buck, essentially. Um, and so that also helps. It puts more revenue into the, the province's coffers. And as well, the, the price differential between the price of oil on the world market Market and the price that Alberta gets for its crude uh, has narrowed. That's the that that differential is what Alison Redford uh, famously coined the bitumen bubble. That bubble has narrowed, and so uh, as a result, more revenues were coming in from oil sales and, and and royalty revenues. So those three things contributed. That being said, they were very. Finance Minister Campbell was very cautious to say, you know, we're not just ticking along tickety boo here. Things are not going well. We've still we still hear, heard that big seven billion dollar hole in the budget that we've been hearing ad nauseum for the last two months or three months almost now, I'm not sure. Um, And so, you know, we are still being told that the situation is dire. It will be tough, not business as usual. All of those cliches that we've been hearing over and over again. This is good news, right? Is this a sign that the government has been making the changes that they're supposed to? Is 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 it good financial news and good political news as well? Well, I think to put it in the in the terms that most Albertans will understand, it's kind of like you know, your mother-in-law sends you $5,000 to kind of make the mortgage payment and, and deal with some some pressing financial issues. But the reality is you still, you're still completely underwater and on the verge of bankruptcy, right? I mean, I think I sat down with the finance minister in preparation for a feature that the journal will run in a couple of weeks. And he said to me, look, the, the real issue here is that um, 
Albertans just haven't felt the crunch yet. Uh, we are seeing right now, for example, in the oil patch that a lot of the companies have uh, invested capital for their winter their winter drilling and their winter programs. That money's going to dry up in the spring, and that's when we're going to start seeing people losing their jobs and, and all of the consequent impacts that that has on the Alberta economy. So what Campbell's doing um, is, is trying to prepare people for what's coming, but by the same token, the, the political implications were incredibly damaging because they had just knocked a whole bunch of money off the Auditor General, which is an oversight body, and the Child and Youth Advocate, which investigates the deaths of children in care. So maybe Miriam can talk a lot, a little bit about that. Or Well, you know, because I think Karen's right. I think this is, I, not that I'm, not that I, you know, I haven't had a chance yet. You can have a chance, Paula. Go ahead. We'll, we'll let you have this one. Go ahead. Karen is correct when she says this is not good political news for Robin Campbell because it's pretty hard to soften people up for all kinds of cuts, not just cuts to the Auditor General and the Privacy Commissioner and the Child and Youth Advocate, but, you know, they are continuing the rhetoric about the need to make public service cuts. It's hard to do that, not only when you have an almost $500 million surplus, but when your budgeting numbers were off by almost $1 billion, it makes you look like you don't know what you're doing because that surplus has nothing to do with cuts. That surplus has to do with a miscalculation of the revenues that were going to be coming in. So A, it doesn't make them look competent, and B, it makes it very difficult to create you know, the political winning conditions for, for major cuts and rollbacks. Were they getting to the surplus by digging into the contingency at all, or is the surplus just without having to deal with not that $5 a, yeah. billion dollar cushion? Not at all. This, I mean, in fact, the contingency fund has, has grown um, even bigger than they thought it was going to be as well. It, it it was at $5 billion, I think, at the last quarterly update that uh, we covered. It's now at $6.3 billion. They haven't touched it yet. They will dip into it. Uh, Finance Minister Campbell said that they will dip into it uh, in the next budget to, to sort of soften the blow of the of the, of the the budget crunch that we're facing. But this isn't a result of the the cuts and the crunch that, that we're hearing about all the time. This is a simple matter of more revenue having come in than they were expecting. Which in a normal place would indeed be very good news. In a normal political jurisdiction, that would be outstanding news and a sign of good government management. Only here has the Alberta government succeeded in making their victory look like a failure. Well, and it, what it does is it really highlights to the, the degree to which we are dependent on oil royalties and the degree to which Alberta is on and remains on the royalty roller coaster um, that we can be off by five. I mean, the jokes on Twitter were hysterical. I mean, I mean people off, were yeah, saying like, oh, I over budget or under budget by a billion, you know, now and then do it happens. Because right? I say a billion because they were predicting we'd be 500 in the hole and instead we're 500 to the good. So that's but a billion. When you think, just to be fair, when you think about the size of the budget, $44 billion, I mean, 500 million or a billion, like that's not a huge amount within the context of that budget, but is then it, it? But then it, it, in the context of the budget, no, but it, in the in the context of the world, a billion dollars is a lot of money. And yes. in the con- and in the context of the surplus, it's it's yes. it is it is a significant amount of money because when we were talking about the surplus, it went from one point one billion to nine hundred thirty three million. Not such a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And then we were and then it swung all the way to the other side. You know, it's five hundred million deficit. That that's a huge jump. And then just within a month and a bit to go back to four hundred and sixty-five million, it does seem like, as as uh, people were saying, a yo-yo, a roller coaster. And it, and it does make the very punitive cuts to the Auditor General's office and the Child and Youth Advocate and the Privacy Commissioner and the Ombudsman and all those other oversight bodies look really petty because we were told, oh no, we can't give the Auditor General five hundred thousand dollars because there is no more money. And remember, that's not his upcoming 
upcoming budget. That's last year's budget, which we're retroactively, you know, chopping down. And, and same with the child and youth advocate. You know, we can't give them $300,000 because the sky is falling. The sky isn't exactly falling. There are little rainbows it's, in the sky. It's well, rainbows. It's at least stable. Well, well, the, you know, and on the sky, and the sky may well fall in six months. I mean, as as Karen says, I mean, Robin Campbell is not wrong in that. You know, the forecast for the spring is not good, but that's not what people see in here. What people see in here is, you know, we have a billion dollars more than we thought we were going to have. So why did we? You know, why did we make these niggling petty cuts to the bodies that are supposed to provide oversight of the legislature? And I think I think to put this whole thing in, into into even broader perspective, the reality is we're going into a really bad budget. So I think what we're seeing from the Prentice government right now is a lot of foreshadowing. We've heard all kinds of figures coming out of them. In a lot of ways, we're going to actually know what's in the budget before the budget actually comes down. We've heard uh, how many billions they're going to go into debt for uh, capital construction. We've heard um, the seven billion figure, as Marion points out ad nauseum that there's a hole in the budget that they're what they're doing is they are softening Albertans up for a very bad budget and what the surplus did was allow Albertans to go ah you know we got we got still a whole bunch of money in the bank let's not worry about that right now you know so that budget is going to hit harder when it Mm -hmm. comes down and just following up on that too it was interesting you know here here was a surplus being being delivered to Albertans and yet they were going out of their way to to sort of ready uh and and from my perspective just from what I gathered the public sector unions uh because there Mm -hmm. was a very there was quite a focus on these negotiated contracts uh for example the AUPE contract that had uh, finally been settled last year as we remember after the whole debacle with Bill 45 and 46. They made a point of saying that that was on the previous administration and that it was going to cost Albertans $2.6 billion over the next three years, as though Finance Minister Campbell was not on the negotiating team for those unions. Right. Uh, so, you know, that th- there was a committee of, 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 of uh, cabinet ministers and he was one of them. So to sort of put the onus on the previous administration really when didn't ring true for a lot of people. he was the previous administration. <laughs> yeah. Precisely. It's uh, you know, and so, but in, in that vein, it was I thought it was really interesting that they were trying to say, you know, there's not going to be any more money and we're going to have to deal with this. And, and they have all these figures ready, you know, uh, what talking about the budget, they've got, they've got them at the ready, you know, this is as much as we pay all of the teachers, or this is as much as we pay all of the doctors. The mm. message is we're coming for you. Right. Doctors are being paid 10% more than elsewhere in the rest of Canada. I've heard the premier saying. And but you know, but these contracts are, are, you know, in most cases new and ongoing. It's not as though, I mean, they can't compel people who no. signed contracts to take payroll. Packs. And I did hear the premier say yesterday that he acknowledged that the contracts are legally binding. But I think he's hoping to the to, government to talk can it make out. laws, though, right? We still remember that. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, so th- any more predictions about what we're going to see from the budget next month? Oh, it'll be bad. It's going to be bad. Yeah, yeah. brace, and, brace and, yourselves. And when is it going to come? I mean, this is this is the fascinating thing. I mean, by the time most people are listening to this podcast, it will be March. Uh, the fiscal year end ends in four weeks. Uh, where is the well, budget? We, we asked about that actually in the press conference because when when the government set the session date for March tenth, they tenth they said that their the budget was going to be delivered by the end of March. Mm-hmm. When we asked uh, Minister Campbell when the budget was going to be delivered, if he had an, any more of a specific date, he said, "Well, we're not sure." And I said, "Well, is it still going to be delivered by the end of March, as the government indicated in a press release not that long ago?" And he said. We'll see. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Another another phrase that we've been hearing ad nauseum. We have, and a- I mean, I always find it because the, the start of the fiscal year is April first, so you would think you would want to know how you're going to budget your money for starting April first. But I guess you can just go on well, with last know, year's I mean, plan until you have a new plan. I mean, Liberal Laurie Blakeman, uh, you know, 
is, is still talking about the fact that she thinks they're going to go to the polls without a budget. Well, I think that's, we'll I, I think she's wrong about that. I think what we're going to see, we're going to go back on the 10th of March. We're going to see them go immediately into um, supplementary and interim supply discussions. Uh, that's going to allow us to carry forward into uh, April, uh, which is going to happen no matter what. And then, and that's, and we've got time built in for that kind of debate. And then we're going to see the budget dropped before the end of March. And the reason I think that's still going to happen is because they have to get Albertans to the polls by the end of April because seating starts in May and there's going to be an OPEC meeting in June. Seating as in farm, farmer's yes. field seating? Yeah, well, okay, let, yeah, let yeah. us not forget that, that po- politics is very much about getting people to the polls, yes. right? And you don't want to do it in the middle of winter because it's hard for people to get. It's cold, right? You don't want to get out of your house, especially in Edmonton and Calgary. Um, and then, you know, you, you the seating, the farmers are on their their, their tra- tractors. They're, they're working in May, right? Well, so, I mean, there's that, that work of just getting people to the polls. They don't want to have a midsummer election. And they also don't want to wait too long because they don't want to, as Karen had said earlier, wait until people begin to feel the brunt of that pain and that mm, budget crunch. Right. And, and, the and there's a complicating factor of a federal election that could be any time now. They don't also don't want them happening simultaneously. They and couldn't happen simultaneously. That would be... Oh. Uh, they, there would be no... Volu- there's no volunteer base that would be able to, to support no, both no, at the ex- same time. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, if Harper drops a writ, um, which could also happen anytime, and at that point, all our heads will collectively explode. (laughs) And OPEC is meeting in June. Ah. I think that meeting is in June, and that could change everything in terms of the price of oil. And mm-hmm. so uh, I have to, have to say the line of, a little shout out to our colleagues, the Harold Don Braid's line of the week was, uh, was he definitely had the line of the week, which he, he called this 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 uh, fiscal update Armageddon Interruptus, which I just thought was hysterical. <laughs> um, but the, the reality here is that Prentice is relying on these low oil prices to persuade Albertans, A, to take these cuts in the budget, and B, I think we are going to see, I think all signs point to some kind of additional revenue. Let's move from unexpected budget news to unexpected news from the official opposition because uh, there has been like like you like we said in the intro a lot of unexpected news so the wild rose party originally said it was going to wait until june to hold its leadership race but this thursday they announced that there was a, there's been a major change of plans the race is on right now it started already wild rose members can start voting by phone on march 16th and the party will announce its new leader on march 28th which is Gosh, just a month from now. So who do we have in the race so far? So the first person out of the gate was Brian Jean. He's a for, former MP in Stephen Harper's government uh, for Fort McMurray. So he he's in the oil sands uh, and, and quite well known and established in that community. We've got Linda Ossenchuk from Sherwood Park. She's a former mayor there. Really interesting political background from her. Uh, she announced yesterday, as did Drew Barnes, who is the MLA for Cypress Medicine Hat. Um, and he is, uh, I think he's a first term MLA uh, for the Wild Rose. And he is the only sitting MLA who is in the race so far. Both Ossenchuk and uh, and Brian Jean will have to run in the next election to secure their seats. Yeah, so, so Brian Jean, like you said, is a former federal conservative MP from Fort McMurray. And he stepped away from politics last year. What made him re-enter the fray, Paula? What's the word? It's a really very peculiar answer because his official answer is that his son is extremely ill and that he became very frustrated with the way the healthcare system worked and decided to re-enter politics. It is not usual for a politician to re-enter politics just as a family member has a medical crisis. So it's, I mean, it it was a kind of a peculiar public justification. I mean, I guess I was surprised because when Brian Jean stepped away from federal politics, sort of the implication was that he was not happy with the uh, direction of the Harper government. He had then been a supporter of Jim Prentice's leadership bid. I believe he made a, you know, a sizable contribution to Prentice's leadership bid. So 
I, I'm not quite certain that we've had a very compelling answer from Brian Jean about why at this point he decided to re-enter provincial politics, but I think the Wild Rose should be very grateful at this point because he, even when he first said that he was thinking about it, it instantly gave that race and that party a renewed credibility. So he's being described by some as apparently the Jim Prentice of the Wild Rose. Is it a fair comparison or not? Paula? I don't, I don't yeah. think he has the cachet that Prentice has. Uh, he's he's well known, very he well known. He was never a cabinet minister no, in the federal. He was backbencher and a, and a he doesn't have much uh, presence outside of Fort McMurray Wood Buffalo or Fort McMurray generally, but he is very well known in that part of the province. He's mm-hmm. a very successful businessman and he's raised his family there. So, um, but, you know, he did his announcement, I think, in Calgary. And I think that speaks to his need to, um, you know, connect with with voters down there in the party. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean that's really interesting that he he is a Northern Alberta candidate and the Wild Rose is very much a Southern Alberta party at this point. So. Yeah, and Paula, you've covered Linda Austinchuk when she was a municipal politician in Strathcona County. What do you think she brings to the race? Well, I think it's really interesting. I mean, politics in Strathcona County are bizarrely cutthroat and bizarrely female dominated. I don't know if those two Wonderfully things go female together. Dots, great. Right. It's it, and and Linda Austinchuk uh, was a very high profile mayor of of Strathcona County. Uh, she's very very charismatic. She's got lots of personality and bubble and zip. She was also a fairly divisive mayor in Strathcona County. She lost her re-election bid in the last municipal election to Roxanne Carr. Uh, People felt, I think, that she uh, hadn't led a very united council. But she has personality and a sense of humor and a really larger-than-life personality. She's got, you know, certainly the most colorful Wild Rose politician I think they've ever had. And as is Car- she the Paula Simons of the Wild Rose Party? <laughs> well, she sort of is. She and I, she and I have been on a couple political panels together, and we got on like a house on fire. I mean, I might not agree with her politics, but I like her moxie. Uh, and she was she was right out the gate, um, as you will read in Karen Cleese's excellent front-page journal story today, um, throwing down the gauntlet to Brian Jean and the other right wingers in the party, saying. She supports gay rights, she supports gay-straight alliances, and that their party will never um, be able to achieve power unless they moderate their image as social conservatives. Which is interesting, because that's exactly what Danielle Smith said when she left that party, you know, that she didn't want to lead a perpetual NDP of the right, she didn't want to lead an opposition forever, and that she was going to quit if they didn't make government after the next election. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and after she quit, obviously told everyone that the reason why was because she felt like the base of that party wasn't ready to, to, to be more moderate on social and moral issues, as she calls them. And you know, what was really interesting about that press conference yesterday is that nobody was there. The Journal was the only reporter there, and of course the Sherwood Park News was there, uh, but there was no other media present for her announcement. And I, when I, when I was calling my editor on my way back to the newsroom, I said, well, you know, this, this story is actually a really great story because she has basically pulled out all the dirty laundry and put it on the table. I mean, what's happening in the Wild Rose right now is fascinating because ironically, they are in the midst of an identity crisis crisis of their own. Um, Do they want to be a party for uh, right-wing social conservatives who, for example, believe that LGBTQ folks are going to uh, burn uh, forever in a lake of fire unless they repent? Um, Or are they going to attempt to um, moderate their views and, uh, and win over the vast majority of Albertans and govern? 
Um, there, there are two. There, it is a legitimate enterprise for a party to say, "Look, our goal is to represent these constituents. We want to have two, three, maybe five MLAs in the House, so we can be the voice of the Christian right." There is a, a large constituency of folks like that in Alberta, and they deserve representation in the House. The party could go in that direction should they choose. But as Austin Chuck said quite, uh, quite wisely yesterday, if they choose that route, they will never govern. And we know that from the 2012 election. We know that when Albertans start taught when the Wild Rose or any party starts talking like a fire style they don't get into government so and so the challenge for for Austin Chuck it, you know if she wants to lead a party in that way is going to be a to, to see whether she can convince the base that that is the direction she should take it in or or b attract people from outside the party who hold those views who will be able to support mm-hmm. her in her um, leadership can we just yeah. talk briefly about Drew Barnes because he was you know what I I didn't know that much about him he, he when he before all the other wild rose MLAs crossed the floor but he has taken a much bigger leadership role I mean he had to I guess since since Danielle Smith and all the others left but tell me a little bit more about him and like what we've learned about him in recent months I, what I can say about Drew Barnes you know what's interesting about this leadership race is that the wild rose is very much a southern Alberta party and so it's it was it has been stunning for us that there's two northern Alberta candidates and and normally the way the media works is that we uh, you know the the Herald typically covers things in southern Alberta and the Journal covers things in northern Alberta so as journalists we've had to learn a lot about the Wild Rose Party's inner workings over the past couple of weeks because we've been writing about the leadership race for the first time um, I don't know Drew Barnes that well I've only interviewed him once uh, what I do know about him is that he's a very successful businessman he was in real estate for many years um, he is uh, he's a very successful businessman he's got three sons and a wife. Um, and and that he is certainly a social conservative, a, a fiscal conservative, and a stalwart of the Wild Rose Party, and certainly very happy to step into the role of uh, in the spotlight. I mean, he he is yes. relishing in that. He's really enjoying being the spokesperson, being the person that people go to for comment as a critic. Uh, you get that sense that he is really enjoying. He's having, kind of been waiting for it. He's, yeah, he's he enjoying is, yeah. having that spotlight. That that is is something that is really palpable when you speak to him. Well, oh. and you have to say, I mean, he could have he could have taken the easy route with so many of his colleagues and crossed the floor, uh, and he chose not to do that. And I think that that speaks to a certain kind of tenacity and strength of character. I think what's going to be really interesting because Gene is emerging as the clear front runner. He was uh, backed right away by Derek Fildebrandt, uh, late of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, who'd been whose name had been brooded about as a potential leadership candidate. Um, some of the old Wild Rose machine is already lining up behind Brian Jean. But but Karen's right. I mean, he's got lots of profile in Fort McMurray, where his parents are also very high profile members of the community and business people in the town. Does he have name recognition outside of the Wood Buffalo region? I'm not so certain. And nor are his views on gay rights. Um, you know, as an MP, he voted against gay marriage. That's a long time ago. Lots of people have changed their mind about gay marriage. But when he spoke to the lovely Karen Cleese yesterday, he didn't exactly come out as a stalwart ally of queer causes. Yeah, hmm. and I think the other interesting thing about Austin Chuck as a as a political as a candidate in this race is that she, uh, her political history is really interesting. She is going to try in this next election to unseat Kathy Olison. Now, Kathy Olison was the mayor that she that Austin Chuck unseated in Strathcona County in 2010. So they've got a long political history. But that political history is interesting because in that mayoralty race, Austin Chuck uh, basically unseated Olson because Olson had failed to get a hospital in, built in Sherwood Park. And the the allegations that were swirling in the major context of that, that mayoralty race was that 
she um, was in bed with the Tories, basically, and then eventually became a Tory and now is a Tory. So Austin Chuck is tapped into already all of that anti-Tory sentiment, not mm. just in Sherwood Park and Strathcona County, but in the wider areas around Edmonton and the capital city, because she sat on all these boards and committees um, over the ta- her time in mayor. So she has a constituency of folks who I think could potentially support her in her drive for a Wild Rose bid and her drive for a, a PC alternative bid. Um, and and that, I, I don't know how deep those wells are. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. Obviously. It's going to be a really interesting race. Yeah. Wow. Which I never thought we would have said. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I think it just got interesting yesterday, frankly. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is time to move to good stuff from the gallery. And that's a part of the podcast where we recommend a great political read or political broadcast, something we, and, and we do define politics pretty broadly at times. So what does each of you have for show and tell today? Mariam, I start you because you emailed me last night with yours. That I am not afraid to say infuriated me. It was a story that the CBC led with on The National yesterday uh, and was making its rounds on social media. I don't know what the exact headline is, but essentially it was a story about a judge in Quebec who refused to hear the case of a woman who was wearing the hijab in the courtroom. And the judge's excuse for that was to say that the court is a secular place and a secular space. And she then went on to uh, cite Article 13 of the Quebec uh, Rules of the Court, which says that anyone entering the court must be suitably dressed and went on to say that in her opinion, the woman wearing a hijab was not suitably dressed and went on to equate a hijab, a religious piece of clothing that someone wears out of conviction, uh, with a hat and sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Infuriating. Yes. Disgusting. We'll put a link to uh, the CBC stories on that. They had the audio of the judge They had the speaking. audio of the judge speaking, which is, I think is what really I found the most upsetting because the judge is just so plain spoken in her denial of this this woman uh, denying this woman access to the court system which is a fundamental right uh, mm-hmm. for for any canadian so is she going to start kicking out jewish judges wearing yarmulkes that or you know jewish not or christians wearing crosses around their necks like, anything i yeah. mean it's 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 uh, it's it's unconscionable to to deny someone access to justice simply because of their religious convictions which in this country we we all should be agreeing is totally uh, as sacrosanct. I said, uh, uh, mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you, Paula. <laughs> Paula, th- thank you, Miriam. Paula, would you like to fall? I don't know if you're I, as fired up about your well, uh, good I, stuff. I, I am, but not in the same way. Um, this weekend, we get the third season of the American version of House of Cards, starring uh, Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright as the uh, fiendish and conniving Washington politicos. But since I haven't seen it yet, um, uh, my Wait, actual- any of it. Well, no, no, I haven't seen season three. Oh, okay. No, I've seen, I've seen, no, no, I've seen seasons one and two. Okay, but, okay. But while I was waiting for season three to start, I noticed that Netflix has has posted the original British series, mm-hmm. uh, House of Cards to play the king and Final Cut. And so since I can't technically recommend season three of House of Cards because it hasn't started yet, I'm going to recommend that people go back and watch the original British series. Um, you might think that, but I couldn't possibly comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm going to go uh, down across the border into the United States, back to a place where I used to uh, live and report, back to South Carolina, as I do from time to time. And it's a, it's an older story now, but I still think it's worth pointing out in case people missed it. There was a case that I covered. It was an old civil rights case that I wrote about a few times when I lived in Rock Hill, South Carolina. There were nine civil rights activists who were arrested in 1961 for sitting at a whites-only lunch counter in Rock Hill, South Carolina. They were the first people who actually served the time in prison and instead of just paying the fine and getting out, they served 30 days in prison. It was really fascinating to me at the time because I got to interview many of these men 
and the women who were also protesting but did not end up getting arrested at the time because they were all still alive at that point. A uh, museum was just being set up with a with a, a section on this group called the Friendship Nine. And in late January, their sentences were vacated by a circuit court judge. And it was a, ma- a historic moment that the, everyone from the New York Times to NPR to The Guardian wrote about. And I'm going to put up the links to some of those stories because real important historic moment. And I was very glad to see this happen. And uh, so I'll, I'll put up those a few links to stories about the Friendship Nine. And that is where we are going to wrap up. So my thanks again to Data, Paula, Karen and Miriam for coming in and to videographer Ryan Jackson for being here and picking making, a video clip making from, us all look so beautiful you will be able to find that clip on Edmonton Journal's website and you can find previous episodes of the show the audio version on edmontonjournal.com or on SoundCloud and on iTunes just search out our feeds for the press gallery thanks to web producer Stuart Thompson we are also now on TuneIn Radio so you can find all the old archives of the press gallery on TuneIn Radio which is an online radio source so thank you so much Stuart for doing that for us and subscribing on iTunes and all these various places is free. You'll be d- delivered to you by the Digital Elves whenever we get it posted, which these days is is later Friday. Friday evening usually is when you can count on getting your press gallery. So I'm Sarah O'Donnell. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week in the press gallery.